Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and in this episode, I'm joined by Catherine Downey-Miller. Catherine is the VP of Energy Strategy at FactSet, which she joined last year through the acquisition of her firm, BTU Analytics. BTU provides analytics and market data on the North American renewables, power, oil, and natural gas sectors. Prior to founding BTU, Catherine held a diverse set of industry roles, including time on the buy side, consulting to private equity and investor relations for energy companies, and investment banking. She speaks frequently at industry events on North American energy markets, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion today, Catherine, where I'm hoping to pick your brain about trends in energy markets, energy security, Russia, indigenous engagement, and more. So welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. So let's dive right in. Energy price volatility has delivered investors to massive extremes, as we know, over the past couple of years, with WTI, or the benchmark crude price, falling to the low teens at the onset of COVID and then surging to 10-year highs in recent weeks. It's a big question, but I'd like you to start at the macro level, if you could, Catherine. How would you characterize the state of the energy market today? And are these price levels we are seeing, quote, new normal? Yeah, well, today's energy price levels might feel like an extension of what's happening across the global economy with inflation and supply chain issues exasperated by Russia's war in Ukraine. We characterize it maybe a little bit differently. Russia's war with Ukraine is really just the catalyst that laid bare the consequences of some structural trends that have been in motion over the previous decade. We have world leaders committed to transforming our energy systems in recognition of the harm that greenhouse gases can do to our planet. But these leaders are enacting policy that is limiting or putting additional regulatory risk on assets and companies that are producing energy today. And this was before threats of export bans and windfall profit taxes. So at the same time, we're having global energy demand still growing. So we're we're putting limitations on how to produce new energy but demand keeps going up. We're in the middle innings of a transformative half century where the majority of the global population has not only escaped extreme poverty, but is achieving greater standards of living. Greater standards of living mean more things and energy to build them. We're not talking about Americans getting even larger houses or big screen TVs here. We're talking about a shift in global incomes, allowing more people access to clean water, electricity, cooking fuels, motorized transport, and education. So beyond those kind of big picture trends, we have shale producers in the U.S. that have been conditioned to prioritize returning cash to shareholders, with shareholders demanding that publicly traded producers commit to distributing a certain percentage of their operating cash flow to investors before even thinking about drilling new wells. This is also putting pressure on supply. So even with added cash that producers have with today's elevated uh, energy prices, uh, supply chain and and labor shortages are limiting the ability of those energy producers to put capital back into the ground and grow production. So that's really impacting the ability of, of production to respond in the near term. Some other factors that are at play are we have an investment community that that is awash in ESG capital, but is hesitant to embrace growth in oil and gas production despite rising global demand. 
And finally, we have an energy market and policy fragmentation that inhibits the growth of infrastructure, which is really key to delivering energy from where it's produced to the people that use it. Now, all of these, the, those big structural factors and these more recent kind of trends, they're all clashing and colliding in, in the energy market that we have today. When we think about what, what results in prices moving from where they are today, we, we don't expect to see today's prices be the long-term normal for crude, natural gas, and electricity. But we also don't expect to go back to the sustained price levels that we had for the five years prior to COVID, being at $50 to $60 crude or $3 nat gas. Those days are really gone. We're probably finding a new normal somewhere in the middle. So let's talk a little bit about supply-side constraint a bit, Catherine, if we can. You talk about uh, ESG money that's that's hesitant to get put to work in the in the oil patch, and we've certainly seen obviously concerns about both environmental impacts, as well as indigenous consultation and partnership. There seem to be at the heart of many supply side constraints on energy. You've seen countless projects scuttled on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border as a result. That's just looking closer to home here in North America. I'm sitting, as you know, in Vancouver. So BC, we've seen a lot of disputes around. Um, pipeline projects in this part of the world uh, and in Alberta south. So you got Keystone XL that was on and off and on and off again. Northern Gateway was canceled. Petronas's original run at the LNG project on the north coast here was canceled. TC Energy had a couple of projects headed into eastern Canada that were canceled. You know, a lot of them, you know, related to these two themes. So so what, what do companies need to do better to improve their track record in terms of addressing both the environmental concerns and then dealing fairly with Indigenous stakeholders. Like you said, it's, it's true in Canada and, and the U.S. very much as well. Overall, there needs to be broader recognition that products have to articulate the benefits not only to shareholders and, and the counterparties that they want to invest in these projects, but to all stakeholders. And it's not just checking a notification box. It's figuring out a fair distribution of economic benefits as well, whether it's jobs or taxes or other benefits. Some of the most promising oil and natural gas resources in North America will likely never see development, even if those resources sit in a jurisdiction friendly to oil and gas development, because the risk of infrastructure development, so connecting the dots, has has, it's not just the risk that can you develop the infrastructure, but can you develop in a, it in a timely manner that investors in the project can feel comfortable with and get behind? So the timing risk really magnifies the potential costs of a lot of these projects, making them unpalatable to private investment. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what side of, of energy infrastructure development you are on, we've seen parties figure out that you can really attack the timing of a project, have that project be canceled and make it so that resources can't be developed and that we can't bring bring new supply to market. Thanks for that. So so you touched on Russia a little bit in your comments earlier there. And a couple of months back, we actually had a, a good conversation on here with global geopolitical strategist John Halsman. That was our May 17th episode. We talked about the situation in Russia and Ukraine. He pointed to a heightened global focus on energy security as a byproduct of that conflict. So I'm interested in your perspective, Catherine. Can can you talk a bit about the recalibration of priorities we see from governments following Russia's invasion of Ukraine? 
And we see the impacts in today's markets, but how does that change the outlook for energy markets over the longer term? Mike, there could be a really long, a full episode on, on this answer, but I'll try to keep it short here. The short answer is that we are going to see greater segmentation and therefore higher prices as we overcome the friction of rerouting supplies and realigning with groups and countries seen as sharing similar priorities. We've already seen the impact of the EU's ban on crude softened by the willingness of China and India to purchase discounted crude cargoes. Um, China and Russia were already bolstering an energy alliance and had announced a new natural gas project back in February. And I think these are signs of, of this realignment that we see ahead that will factor into where global, or global flows supply going forward. Europe, in particular, is going to have to balance the impact of higher energy costs on economic growth with their aggressive climate goals. Even this winter, we're seeing kind of a reshuffling of priorities with coal plants to, set to come back out of retirement for Germany and potential gas rationing being talked about in that country as well. That rationing, if it does happen, you know, hits industry rather than consumers. And Germany's central bank has estimated that cutting off Russian gas could cause German GDP to, to have a meaningful slide rather than growing 3%, shrinking 2%. So you know, there are real costs to disruptions in energy. And I think as we look out further, we're going to have to factor in these geopolitical catalysts are going to not only drive up price, which obviously gets the attention of a public that's used to lower energy prices, but also raises the stakes for, for the politicians leading our governments. For us, when we were looking at the outlook, really the biggest change from, from the actions of this year uh, to our both short-term and longer-term outlook was a higher LNG forecast, uh, as we anticipated that energy security and security of supply would provide renewed interest in the second round of U.S. LNG export facilities. We've added an additional 8 BCF a day of LNG to our forecast at the end of this decade, and that explicitly includes several more export facilities in our forecast, making it to FID. So Catherine, you make an interesting point on LNG there. I wonder if you could just make a quick comment for our listeners who, who don't look at the markets the same way or to the same extent that you do. Just explain a little bit about how the conversion of natural gas to LNG changes the calculus a little bit around that hydrocarbon. So, you know, removing it from being a trapped market constrained by geography to being able to sort of trade it around the world in a, in a way similar to, to crude. What does that mean to energy security? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. Like you said, prior to having the ability to liquefy natural gas and put it on a boat and ship it across the, across the globe, gas markets were, were much more segmented. So for example, with, within North America, you had US and Canadian markets that were very much dislocated from a world market you know, a decade ago, which meant that as we grew natural gas supply, even though LNG prices or natural gas prices in Europe and in Asia were very high, we didn't have the ability to connect U.S. supply with those other markets. LNG has enabled the globalization 
of the natural gas market and the ability for suppliers across the world, you know, the, some of the largest suppliers of LNG uh, are the U.S. today, Qatar, Australia, to provide natural gas to buyers globally. And it's been, originally the natural gas markets were characterized by long-term contracts where gas was procured for, uh, in many cases, a decade or more from a facility and delivered to a utility buyer on on the other side of the, the globe. But what we've seen with more and more LNG supply come on over the, the previous decade is that there is now much more liquidity in LNG markets, and there is the ability to buy gas from counterparties across the world, which is what we're seeing countries in Europe having to do now. They have the ability to buy gas on the global market from marketers or or other parties that own supplies and to import those via infrastructure, whether they are chartering LNG facilities that sit on ships and can be used to make that natural gas usable and import it into their countries, or if they're going to build out onshore LNG import terminals to facilitate longer-term imports of natural gas. And we, we see a combination of strategies with, with both chartering the offshore LNG import ships as well as, as looking to build new terminals being discussed in, in Europe today. So can you, can you tell me, Catherine, what does is, what is your, your new outlook mean for, for longer-term demand for oil and natural gas? Yeah, I think, you know, as, as someone who sits in energy markets every day, but is also called to discuss energy markets with folks who are with backgrounds that, that don't bring them to energy markets day to day, one of the things that I think is often misunderstood is just how wide and deep usage is of of energy and hydrocarbons in particular within our economy. Hydrocarbons gave us cheap, transportable, concentrated energy that has really enabled the development of our modern world. While many potential scenarios and forecasts have hydrocarbons playing a substantially reduced role in electric generation, and potentially as a transport fuel within the U.S., the global need for energy is still growing based on improvements in in standards of living. It's good to remember that roughly five of the seven billion people on this planet live outside of Europe, outside of North America, in Asia and Africa, uh, where the relative improvements in standard of living are most dramatic as most of the global population is getting access to stable electricity, transportation, modern agriculture, cement, glass, steel, global energy needs are going to continue to grow. But unlike some of our our Western countries to some extent, those needs are, are very price sensitive. Unfortunately, when we think about the work that we've done so far in decarbonizing our energy systems, renewables in energy generation are really the low-hanging fruit amongst the solutions to our emissions problems. If you're looking to completely displace fossil fuels, the green premiums or the additional costs of using an alternative solution become much more substantial 
And will governments allow costs to rise to, to you know, pay these green premiums? Will they allow this if their industries lose competitiveness globally? There's no easy answers, and, and it all points to a, a messy energy transition. So we've, we've got to put all of this together into an outlook. And how do we do it? When we look at the energy mix and the demand for the different primary fuels, we do believe that the energy mix will change, but under almost all scenarios, hydrocarbons will remain a significant, a significant proportion of the mix. This is particularly true for natural gas. Our base case scenario for demand for U.S. natural gas continues to grow through the mid-2040s, so we've got a lot of running room left there before beginning to a period of decline. When we look at oil markets, our U.S. oil production forecast actually grows for another five years before leveling off. So there is still growth out into the future. As an expert in energy markets, is there something you believe is not well understood by investors who aren't focused on these markets day to day? Yeah, I think the complexity and efficiency of our current energy system is completely underappreciated. We take for granted the century of improvements in energy intensity, that we've been able to use fuels that are better fit for purpose and that actually transform through their combustion more of that energy into the mechanical power that we need. The fact that I think we don't appreciate that, that energy is an input in the economy and thus its costs impact economic growth. <laughs> you know, thinking that we can just go all in on solar panels and not ask anything from changes in consumer behavior or costs is, is you know, frankly, a little irresponsible. We need to do a better job of explaining to public and to stakeholders that energy systems are complex and that this change will be a little bit messy, that there are costs involved and that we will, we will try to optimize those costs for, for the best outcome. Energy transitions take time. And to do it well, you really need policy, markets, and infrastructure to work together. And if we've seen anything in the last couple of years, it's that coordinated action is, is really tricky, particularly when you've got governments involved. Today's price volatility, I think, is a warning. And we have to keep in mind as we're moving through this energy transition, you know, the characteristics of our energy will give us new challenges. You know, even with what we're seeing with geopolitical factors playing into oil and natural gas and coal price volatility today, we have to keep in mind that those fuels are highly mobile. Whereas where we're going, electricity, it's it's not. So yeah, it, it's it's highly complex, and we shouldn't simplify it too much because I think that does a disservice. So, so what would you say is the biggest barrier then that you see to renewables getting to the next level and being able to, to make a, you know, a, a significant dent into satisfying the energy demands that we have? Is it, is it battery storage? Is it policy? Is it the energy conversion that you talked about from, uh, from the hydrocarbon side? Like, what's standing in the way of that sort of making a sea change? Yeah, well, I, I do think that we are, I, I don't want to underplay the change that we've seen to date. The, the penetration of renewables, you know, over the, over the past decade has been remarkable. However, to get to that next level of 
of impact to our energy systems, we really have to deal with the intermittency issue. And whether we are dealing with that intermittency, there, there's a couple strategies we can take to deal with that intermittency issue, and we probably need both. First, we, we need to add a lot of storage to the mix. And I think that is expected to happen. However, the supply chain issues that we are dealing throughout the economy are very real in energy markets um, and in energy supply chains. And we are already seeing delays caused by the inability to procure necessary components. And then beyond that, we need better connectivity of, of our grids. It is really difficult. Not only is it really difficult to build pipelines to translate or to transport energy, it's really difficult to build transmission. So I'd like to just take a quick step back, if we can, Catherine. I just I think it might be useful to help position a little bit. You've been talking, sharing some great insights here on our conversation today, but our listeners may be wondering how you and BTU fit into the ecosystem at FactSet. I mean, I've always known FactSet as a data aggregator, of course, a centralized tool that you know I would use to help pull quotes from my models or monitor stock prices or run attributions. But but BTU Analytics, which I mentioned FactSet bought last year, is in a sort of more specialized space. Can you talk quickly just about what BTU focuses on and, and more broadly how FactSet is, is looking at data? So the acquisition of my company, BTU Analytics, was really an extension of an initiative that FactSet embarked on a couple of years ago, which is building sector-specific content and workflow solutions for those sectors. BTU Analytics has an established reputation for research, insights, models, and data in the energy sector. But what excited us about joining FactSet was the opportunity to bridge FactSet's technology and content with granular asset-level intelligence and market knowledge of energy markets from BTU to build an essential tool for valuing assets and companies through the energy transition. As energy markets are evolving, the nuances of geography, policy, infrastructure, and financing become much more important. But if you can't connect those themes with the companies and assets, it's really hard to do the work of answering the questions of, of how these themes affect value. So that's, that's what we're working on, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Great, thanks for that. And we're just we're down to the our final question for today, and um, it's a two-parter. So you can tell us what was your first job in the industry, and if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Well, I started my career in banking with City in New York City. I was a first child, Type A rule follower, status seeker. So I think I'd tell myself that I should, I should find my limits and fail often and spectacularly while the stakes are low. Just to be clear, I'm, I'm not advocating for breaching fiduciary duties here. Uh, I'm talking about being curious and, and nonlinear, particularly with career opportunities. And I'd also say to have fun because you might be surprised where that part leads. I've been speaking today with Catherine Downey Miller, VP of Energy Strategy at FactSet, and Catherine, it's been a real pleasure hearing your insights on, into the energy markets. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mike. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.